Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Oni. Let's take a look at some of this week's leading scientific breakthroughs. To kick off, what's your story, Chris? I've got the first example here of a plant ant tag team that works together to provide food for the pair of them. Now, people are familiar with the idea of ants swarming all over plants and things, and and actually some plants make it more homely for ants by providing little structures called dormatia. These are things like hollow thorns that you find in acacias, and the ants live in those. And by encouraging ants to swarm all over the plants, the plants get the benefit of the ants defending the plant, because if other insects or if termites or even big elephants try and take a bite out of the plant, the ants swarm all over them. This is different. It's a paper which is published this week in the journal PLOS One. It's by a researcher from the University of Montpellier to Vincent Bazile. And what he and his colleagues have done in northwestern Borneo is they've been studying pitcher plants. Now, the pitcher family is a very big family of carnivorous plants. You've probably seen pictures of them. They have these dangling pitchers which have a layer of water inside the pitcher and usually a slippery rim, and insects fall in and they then break down in the digestive juices which are trapped in the pitcher, and the plant then absorbs the nutrients which are released from the insects or whatever falls into the trap's body, and the plant then uses that material to grow. What's different here is that this particular species of pitcher plant is called Nepenthes bicalorata. This is teamed up with one exclusive, unique type of ant. It's called Componitus schmitzi. These ants only live, it turns out, on this type of pitcher plant, and the pitcher plant provides a hollow tendril that the ants can live in, so they have a home there. It also feeds them sugar. It's got little nectaries that secrete sugar solution that the ants can drink. So effectively that's the field kitchen to feed your army of ants that you've barracked on your plant. The thing is, the ants get their carbs there. How do they get their protein? Well, this is the really amazing thing. What the team did when they studied this is they find that the ants hide under the rim of the pitcher. So if you imagine your toilet, you know the bit where the water comes out? Well, there's a rim there, isn't there? The ants go up under there. And when things come by and, and are wandering around the top of the pitcher plant, the ants come out and they push them in. And the insects and other prey fall into the pitcher, but these ants can swim. And they swim across the fluid, they retrieve the prey item, and they eat it. And you'd think, well, that doesn't sound very good for the plant, does it? Because the ants are nicking the plant's food. But actually, the ants then defecate into the pitcher plant, hence my reference to toilet earlier, and they also contribute the carcasses of dead ants. And as a result, the ants are effectively lending the plant the benefit of their much superior digestive system. And so what this group of researchers have done is to look at plants that do have the ants living on them and compare them with plants that don't have the ants living on them to see whether they come off better. The results are really clear. Basically, plants that have the ants growing on them have pitchers that have got twice as much biomass in terms of prey in them. The pitchers are twice as big. The plants contain much greater leaf area, meaning they're growing better. They have three times as much nitrogen in the plants. In other words, when you break down an insect, then you actually get the nitrogenous material out of the insect, and that's what the plants need to grow. And in fact, when they did analysis, they found that 75% in some cases of the nitrogen in the plant has come through the ants in this way. And as they say in their paper, this mixed strategy represents an outstanding adaptation for the exploitation of nutrient-poor soils and is, to our knowledge, unique in the plant kingdom. 
Isn't it amazing? Ain't nature wonderful? Uh, another interesting story from the natural world. Now, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you have a pension plan, Chris, or plan ahead at all. I did have one, but uh, it was an NHS <laughs> pension, so basically I'm now contributing some humongous amount of my salary to, to maintain it. Uh, for nothing. But we do tend to think that planning ahead is purely a human behaviour, but the antics of a chimp called Santino in Furovic Zoo in Sweden are challenging that assumption. And three years ago, Santino hit the headlines when researchers found that he was gathering stones into piles before the zoo opened in the morning, ready to pelt at visitors. Now, not only is this rather cheeky, but it looked like he was actively planning ahead for the day's assaults. Sounds iffy to me. People are a bit sceptical about the idea of the chimp planning the attack. Yeah, some researchers did argue that Santino wasn't actually planning ahead, but instead he was just repeating what he'd learnt to do as a result of spending time in the zoo. But now some new observations from Matthias Osvath and Ellen Carvonen, and they've published in the journal PLOS One this week, suggest that Santino is indeed a forward planning as well as a rather cheeky monkey or rather chimp before any pedants complain to us. OK, so what did they actually see? What have they written up? Well, the researchers watched groups of visitors to Santino's enclosure and they saw him threatening the visitors with stones. Obviously, the people backed off. But when they went closer again, Santino was holding stones, but just playing it cool, you know, doing his chimp thing, having a bit of food. But then suddenly he threw a stone at the visitor group as if he'd been planning to trick them. And the researchers also saw Santino hide stones under handfuls of hay or behind logs in prime spots for throwing. So visitors wouldn't spot these missiles as they approached, suggesting that he knew visitors would come and was still planning to attack them. Is this really evidence of forward planning, though? Well, the scientists who've done these observations, they argue that Santino didn't hide stones like this before 2010 and that it shows that he is forward planning. Now, sceptics still obviously aren't entirely convinced and they argue that it's hard to interpret his behaviour to this degree and that he might be hiding the stones for another reason. He's just one chimp. He may not be representative of the rest of the species. So while these observations hint at the fact that at least one chimp out there may be planning for the future, there's still a lot more work to be done to figure out whether chimps or any other animals can actively plan ahead. Though, even if they can, I don't think they'll be buying into a pension plan anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) Although, Nikki Clayton, who's a neuroscientist who works at Cambridge University, she's got very compelling evidence that scrub jays, birds she dubs feathered Einsteins, can definitely plan for the future. She has a bird motel with a room where they always get fed and a a room where they always get locked to sleep with no food. And she finds that these cheeky birds know that they're going to be locked in the room with no food and so they start hiding food in the bedroom. Ah, very clever. Now also this week, scientists at Cambridge University have identified a signal that controls the activity of brown fat. That's a special kind of adipose tissue that's used to generate heat in the body by burning calories. And it's thought that boosting the activity of this brown fat could help people to lose weight. So people think it could be a very important therapeutic target. Dr Andrew Whittle is from the Metabolic Research Laboratory at Cambridge University and is with us to tell us about this piece of work, which is published this week in the journal Cell. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Chris. So fats aren't all made equal, then? We're not just one blob of adipose. There are different types of fat that do different jobs. Definitely not just one type of fat, no. And and, uh, we've known for a long time that in small children, small babies, uh, and also small animals like mice, you have this other type of fat, which isn't the white fat that stores all the fat, but instead it, it looks brown in appearance because it has lots of these mitochondria, the powerhouses, if you like, of the cell. And it was thought for a long time this wasn't present in adult humans, but research over recent years, has, thanks to new imaging techniques, allowed us to find and locate 
active depots of this brown fat in adult humans as well. And where do you find it? Very much in a similar location to where you find it in small animals, so around the shoulder blade areas and in sort of um, behind the collarbone in the bottom of the neck. And its role is chiefly just to burn energy in order to make you hot? Yeah, I would say the prime reason that brown adipose tissue exists is that it's evolved to help to maintain core body temperature. So as mammals, we depend on maintaining that temperature to, to function properly, and it's very important. And this tissue helps animals to do that. And if it burns calories, of course, it's another way of, of getting rid of excess energy. And one of the things that we're very good at, although looking at the population these days, you could be fooled into thinking we're not, Actually, we're very good at regulating body mass, aren't we? Because despite, in some cases, eating huge amounts of excessive uh, food and then the next day eating too little, we keep our weight, despite these dramatic changes, really quite stable. Is it because it gets dumped into this brown fat and the excess calories do get burned off and you, you just turn them into waste heat? It's, it's possible, but I think we don't have the evidence to suggest exactly how brown fat is regulated in, in that kind of way in humans in terms of how it's acute regulation. But it's, it's potential that some of those calories are being burned in brown fat. Certainly in animals, like uh, in, in mouse models, we know that you can stimulate the brown fat more if you feed a high-calorie diet, so it does respond to that. And you've found a signal that enables you to manipulate the activity of that fat, how metabolically active it is, how many calories it is burning off. Yeah, so basically the protein we identified, um, it seems to prime the brown fat to be able to respond better to the uh, traditional nervous activation of the tissue. So when you take this protein away, the brown fat is less able to, to burn calories to, to activate itself to make heat. So under normal circumstances, the signal comes, what, from the brain via nerve cells into the brown fat and tells it right now you have to, to ramp up your metabolic rate and there's an additional cue, which is the one you found. We think this protein is sort of a, a mechanism to enhance the impact of this heat production. So when you have prolonged exposure to a cold environment or the, the body senses or the brain senses that you're eating a much higher calorie diet, in order to get even more heat out of the brown adipose tissue, it starts to make this protein, this bone morphogenetic protein 8B, which is the one we've, we found, uh, or BMP8B, and that enables the tissue to respond to a greater extent to the same level of nervous stimulation. Where does that signal come from? Does it come from the brain and go in the bloodstream, or does it come out of nerve cells or, or a combination of the two? The BMP8B is made by the brown fat itself. In fact, one of the very interesting things we found in the paper is that BMP8B is very specific in terms of where it's made. So uh, only really made in, in the brown fat, and we found some in the brain as well, was present in the brain, and we went on to look at that. And also the only other place we really detected meaningful amounts was in the testes. Wow. So does that explain then why, why women tend to gain more weight than men? If you look in the population, you do find a higher fraction of women who tend to put on a bit more weight because, it, I mean, it benefits them to do so from a child-rearing point of view, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, wh whether that's because of the... The, they don't have as much BMP8B because they don't have it being produced in the testes. I, whether that's the reason, I, I doubt it very much. I think there's lots more. Of, there's many more differences about women that, that may drive that difference in the in the weight gain phenotype, if you like. But would then the the BMP8B would that come out of the testes or the brain or, or other tissues and make its way in the blood to the brown fat? Will it see that signal and respond to it, or, or is that just going to wash around and do other things in the body? The, the previous evidence from BMPs is that they act mainly in a more autocrine or paracrine manner, so they, they're not secreted like hormones generally. So, and we think that in BMP8B's case, that's probably the case at the moment. We don't have any evidence to suggest otherwise. And, it, and it's enough that it's made in, in such large amounts in the brown adipose tissue that it, it functions there. But also we found that it's, it's, it's present in the brain. And as well as this ability of the BMP8B to improve how much heat the brown fat makes in the periphery, um, we found that actually when you put BMP8B into the brain, you get a very specific central effect. So the, actually, the actual BMP8B in the brain stimulates more nervous uh, activation as well. So it hits on both levels. 
it, effectively it's turning up the thermostat in your body, isn't it? Yeah. So what is the BMP8B actually doing in the adipose tissue? Is it just triggering other cells and saying, right, turn up your metabolic rate? And if that's the case, how does it actually get made? What's the signal that tells the fat to make it? Well, we think the signal in brown fat to make BMPAB is just the fact that you get this nervous activation of the tissue saying, come on, we need to make heat, we need to stay warm. And in order to do that more efficiently, the, the tissue sets itself up to make as much heat as possible. So the BMPAB in the tissue sensitizes it to the adrenergic stimulation. It sets up all the enzymes that need to be there ready to burn the fat and basically just ramps everything up a notch so you get more heat production. And can we simulate that effect? Are there drugs that can mimic that effect? Because if you could pop a pill and just make your brown fat more active, you could burn off excess calories if you're trying to lose weight or or you had a heavy night last night and you think, I feel a bit guilty now, I'd like to, to shed the excess caloric burden. There are certainly drugs that already exist that hit the sympathetic nervous system or thyroid hormone, for instance, or if you did thyroid replacement therapy, there's evidence that that drives more brown fat formation. But the problem is that these current drugs, they're not very specific for for activating the brown fat. And so you get lots of other side effects, which means you can't really use them as an effective drug or a safe drug. One thing about the BMP8B that we think it makes it more interesting is if we could develop maybe a new way to target that pathway that BMP8B signals through, it does seem to be very specific to this thermogenic mechanism. We didn't really find any evidence in our studies to suggest that BMP8B does other things to metabolism and, and changes other aspects of physiology. Does it keep the cells alive? Um, is it trophic? Is it a growth factor for brown fat? Because one argument I've had is that over your lifetime you lose your brown fat and this is why people tend to gain weight or have a tendency to put on more weight and feel the cold as they get older because they lose this tissue. Does it help to sustain the tissue if you have more of this BMP8B signal? No, I think it's important to make that distinction. It's slightly different to some of the other strategies that groups are working on to enhance brown adipose tissue function. We we have found that the BMP8B in brown fat just regulates the mature cells which are already there and makes them more active. However, its role in the brain, with its ability to increase the nervous tone, that could be trophic. So if you have more tone to the tissue, that's known to be a survival factor and, and, a, and a recruitment factor for more bats. So if you potentially through that mechanism, yeah. Andrew, thank you very much. That's uh, Dr Andrew Whittle. He is from the University of Cambridge Metabolic Research Laboratory and he published the work he's just been telling you about this week in the journal Cell. Thanks, Andrew. Now, also this week, we've heard of a match made in heaven. What about a match made in a cell? This is meiotic matchmaking. Now, one of the big questions in biology is when you want to make a sperm or an egg, it's really critical that you only have one copy of each of the chromosomes that are in your cells uh, in those gametes. You've actually got two copies of each of your main chromosomes, so how do you separate them? How do they know each other? How do they know? How does a cell count and know it's got one of each one? Well, there's an intriguing paper. It's in the Journal of Science this week, and it's by a lady from Japan called Da Chao Ding. Uh, she's based at the Advanced ICT Research Institute in Kobe, and she has found a gene called SME, SME2. And by using yeast, and in fact she used a type of yeast called Schizosaccharomyces pompei, it's a simple organism to study because it's only got a small number of chromosomes, unlike us, which have far more. What she's found this gene does is it doesn't actually code for anything in the cell, like a protein, like most genes do. What it instead does is it just makes a string of RNA, a short strand of genetic material. And by studying cells under a microscope, she saw that each of a pair of chromosomes produce from this SME2 gene a little string of this RNA message. These then form up and tangle to form a sort of dot-like structure in the cell, and then they rejoin to their original site on the chromosome, where they came from, 
and this has the effect of tethering the two chromosomes together and aligning them correctly. And this is also very important because when chromosomes are preparing to make gametes, sperms or eggs, they also swap genetic material, the corresponding bits of each chromosome between them. That's called crossing over, and it helps to increase genetic diversity. But if they weren't going to swap the right bits between them, they would muddle up the genetic code and they would produce gametes that weren't viable. So although she says this isn't probably the only way in which the process happens, it's the first insight into a way in which chromosomes can recognise each other and then get themselves together in the correct alignment and in the correct order. I think that's great because I mean, certainly when you look at something like human cells trying to do meiosis, it's basically like trying to untangle 46 balls of string and then line them all up. So that's no, uh, really interesting stuff. And now, with a look at some of the other stories that have been making scientific headlines this week, including how flatulent dinosaurs may have helped to warm up the world, here's Mira Santhillingham with our Naked Scientist Newsflash. The severity of a virus and its effects on the body could soon be predicted using a new technique developed by scientists at the University of Leeds and published in the journal Proteomics. Julian Hiscox and colleagues are developing a barcode system where thousands of proteins within a cell infected by a virus can be analysed at once to identify any changes in the balance of these proteins and predict the pathogenic potential of the virus on the body. The types and levels of proteins affected by infection varies between viruses, allowing the team to determine a unique barcode for each type. A cell can be seen as a battleground for virus infection, so you've got the virus coming in on the one hand, trying to destroy the cell and make more virus, and then the cell on the other hand is trying to stop that virus from doing its nasty work. We're able to capture a snapshot of that battle and then work out from the proteins we studied whether the battle is going to go in favour of the virus or in favour of the cell. Effectively, it allows you to develop a, a diagnostic tool to work out whether something is going to be of a serious clinical nature or not. A new weak spot has been identified in the West Antarctic ice sheet, which could result in a sea level rise of up to 4 millimetres per year. Writing in Nature, Hartmut Helmer from the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research modelled air temperatures and ocean currents in the Weddell Sea, a region of Antarctica previously thought not to affect nearby ice shelves and found that rising air temperatures and an increase in warm ocean currents flowing in towards the Filchner-Ron ice shelf could cause this ice shelf to melt and become more mobile. What we see is that by the year 2070, the coastal current with temperatures like today will be redirected and enter the Filchner-Ronny ice shelf cavity. This will cause an increase in basal melting. This basal melting will reduce the buttressing of the ice shelf, the ice shelf will accelerate, and that allows the drainage of more ice from inland. The major implication of this draining of inland ice is sea level rise. Sharing personal thoughts and views with others activates reward centres in the brain, according to scientists at Harvard University. Working with human volunteers and publishing in the journal PNAS, Diana Tamir monitored brain activity in participants as they answered questions about their personal opinions as well as the opinions of others. She found that as volunteers spoke about themselves, the brain's nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area, which are both associated with reward, became active. In everyday life, we see that 
humans engage in self-disclosure. They do this in naturalistic conversation. They do it over the Internet. We know already that humans are an inherently social creature, um, and I think this sheds light onto one aspect of our social behavior, which is the way in which we interact with other people. We're highly motivated to share information about ourselves with other people, and I think it's kind of the give and take of sharing information about yourself and receiving information from other people that helps us to form social bonds and to basically engage in a, in a highly social world. And finally, dinosaurs could have greatly warmed up the planet during their existence due to their flatulence. By scaling up the annual levels of the gas methane currently produced by the digestive tract of cows, David Wilkinson from Liverpool John Moores University calculated the potential methane output of sauropods, an order of large herbivorous dinosaurs which includes Brontosaurus. His team estimated the sauropods would have generated 520 million tonnes of methane each year due to the large populations of microbes living inside them. The microbes living in sauropod dinosaurs and other large herbivorous dinosaurs could have been producing so much methane that it might have been having an effect on the way that the actual climate of the planet worked. And this is just a, a, an extraordinary idea that little microbes in giant dinosaurs could be having a measurable effect on the workings of the whole planet's climate. And this work was published in the journal Current Biology. Talk about the winds of change. Uh, that's Mira Senthilingham with our Naked Scientist News Flash. Transcripts and the references for all of our news this week can be found on our website at nakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.